Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. Uh, this is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. This month, our guest is uh, Dr. Ted Thornhill. Uh, Dr. Thornhill is an assistant professor of sociology at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, welcome, Ted. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being part of our family of over 5,000 listeners every month, and to our new listeners, we're glad to have you and that you've joined us. Um, uh, Ted, I'm really, as I said earlier, I, I'm really excited about your visit today and talking about um uh, what has been a controversy um, uh, most recently about a course that you are offering um, or, or that you have offered at your university. Um, while I don't want to spend our entire time talking about the controversy, because I really want to get to um, what I think is a fascinating aspect of your work and your research, I would like uh, for you to uh, share with us a little bit about um, what was happening. For those of you who are out there and don't know about the story, um, um, Dr. Thornhill um, recently offered a course um, in, uh, and the course was titled White Racism. Uh, it made national and international headlines, and um, um, there were a lot of calls from individuals um, to the university, to the president of the university, asking that um, Dr. Thornhill be removed. He is a sociologist, um, and he he has a background in sociology and ethnic studies, um, well respected in the field. And they wanted him dismissed. And there have been death threats and um, and and uh, threats to uh, him and his uh, well being. And um, and so this this course. Um, one of the things that I thought was uh, just is so interesting, given that um, the response that people had to it was that in your course description, it um, says a lot. But it, it, one of the things that I thought was uh, um, really interesting was that you said that your course aims to discuss ways to challenge white racism and white supremacy towards promoting an anti-racist society where whiteness is not tied to greater life chances. And I think, you know, that, you know, when I first read that, I, I was like, okay, so what's wrong with that? Why would that be a problem for anyone? But uh, we know that there are a lot of reasons why people wouldn't want that to be discussed and debated and, 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 and contemplated. Um, but tell us a little bit about your experience with why, first of all, you decided to to write the course and and you, what your experience was um, with actually trying to implement the course. Sure. Well, I've been teaching courses on racial stratification 
for nearly a decade. And at uh, Florida Gulf Coast, I hadn't taught a standalone racial stratification course uh, yet. I've been, this is my third year here. I'd taught a course on uh, race and law enforcement and uh, one on the sociology of African Americans. And so I wanted to teach a racial stratification course. I've taught a number of them in the past, and I've, they've had different names, uh, some I didn't like. And so I decided to title the course in a manner that I thought was more honest, that would also pique student interest. And so I gave it the uh, apt title, White Racism. The term has been in the lexicon since uh, at least the 1940s, and there was a course by the title being taught at the University of Connecticut for nearly a quarter of a century. Hmm. And and there's a book by the title uh, written by a former president of the American Sociological Association, written in about 2000, 2001. And mm-hmm. so I didn't really think nothing nothing of the title. So I... I uh, I wrote, I wrote the course description, offered it as a special topics course, put up a few flyers, had some students put them up in some areas. And um, when some uh, students saw that, some white students, they took issue with the title, thought it was an attack on white people. And they proceeded to share images of the flyer and the course description on social media and to contact various uh, conservative news outlets and uh, media figures. And... Uh, and then it began from there. And then I started receiving a, a number of uh, hateful, malicious, and threatening emails, uh, letters, and phone uh, calls, voice messages. You know, and so, so basically there's, there's nothing particularly uh, novel about it except the, the kind of uh, the candor with which I, I address the matter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for, some, for somebody like me who is a, a critical race scholar, the term is actually redundant, and it, mm. it doesn't really need to be called white racism, but apparently mm-hmm. uh, it does because people are confused about uh, the difference between uh, racism and racial prejudice, with the uh, former being structural in nature principally and the latter uh, being uh, existing rather in the realm of ideas and thoughts and and attitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's I, and I've in fact I've, I've sat in on a few presentations where I heard um, uh, almost exactly what you just said about the uh, redundant nature of saying white and racism. Can you expand a little bit more on on how you uh, w- you know without kind of giving it a, all away what what happens in the course, but um, because if people want to know what happens in the course, they should enroll. <laughs> but um, if, uh, but if you don't mind, you know, expand a little bit on, you know, what is it that um, you do to explore uh, in the ways that you mentioned, because in your, in your, um, your description, you talk about, you're going to interrogate the concept of race and examine race's right. ideology. So, um, you know, if some of the kind of the pri- the premises that you, you grounded this course in. Okay, so well, as a sociologist, as a social scientist, I understand race to be a social construct. It's an idea, a political, social, cultural idea. Um, Europeans uh, and their their descendants, their white descendants, you know, uh, racialized non-whites as other and developed a system over hundreds of years that was comprised of laws, various practices, policies, uh, an ideology, belief system that suggested that those racialized as non-white were inferior intellectually, 
biologically, culturally. And today we live with the legacy of that. There are various institutions in our society that are organized in a manner that produce negative disparate outcomes for those racialized as non-white. So uh, I don't understand race to be a biological phenomenon. Clearly there are uh, skin color differences, but we as individuals, as a society, have uh, created uh, meaning for those uh, characteristics. I mean, we could be talking about uh, neck girth or you know earlobes that are connected or not connected, but we don't we don't stratify or organize our society along those lines. Uh-huh. Um, and so we look at white racism uh, at the institutional level as it manifests itself in the criminal uh, injustice system, housing, the labor market, retail settings, education system. We also talk about the, the nature of belief systems, how the ideology of white supremacy, where whites were uh, more intellectually superior and biologically superior, has for the most part transitioned to a period now where and the dominant ideology is one of colorblindness, which suggests that uh, race no longer matters, that merit is the determining factor for individuals' life chances and their social outcomes. And so we discuss that as well. At the uh, conclusion of the course, we talk about different ways that individuals can in their own lives uh, inter- at, an inter- at an interpersonal level when they engage with friends and family members and teammates, classmates, how they can push back against uh, white racist uh, talk and thoughts, and this might be discomforting for those individuals having to push back, and certainly for the for those white individuals who are the recipients of the the challenge to their ways of thinking and acting. But these are valuable experiences for students, and the students in the class appreciate them. Um, and then they also learn about ways to uh, to resist white racial domination through through voting and understanding the kinds of subtle and institutional practices that prevail in our society. So that's a little bit of the flavor of the course. Sure, sure. You know, I um, thank you for sharing that. I, I teach a course um, here at Teachers College, Columbia University, um, that um, is entitled uh, Race and Experience in Urban Education. And um, what I have, I've, for years, I've uh, done research and national studies on uh, school climate, and and what I what I found uh, on, in, in several areas that race was a much stronger predictor of how individuals responded to their school experience. So when they were talking about how things went in school, how they uh, experienced their teachers, and so forth, um, the the race determined that they were more likely to be negative about uh, describing those experiences. Um, but what what I um, you know what what came to mind was this other course, um, the course that I talk about, um, the race and experience in urban education is that one of the things that um, I ask students to do before they get in the, co- in the course is to um, do a kind of two to three minute video describing um, their first um, kind of conscious um, uh, memory of, of race and when they became aware of race, period. You know, just doesn't matter if it was an incident or not. 
Um, but uh, I found um, that even offering this course, that there's some really distinct differences in the way uh, people of different races have come to know what race means. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't know, that may not surprise you as a sociologist, you know, that the, that how they how they came to know um, that there were there there was this construct referred to as race. Um, um, how, how do you how do you uh, make sense of that? I mean, we <clears throat> we have different lived experiences, and you know the racial socialization process is different in the household, and uh, you have a highly segregated society, so people have these different experiences. So it makes sense that individuals ha- would have different kind of uh, seminal moments when it's revealed to them that there's this thing that we that we've created called race, and uh, that there are consequences that it's consequential that it has meaning behind it. Um, cool. I imagine that that uh that, that black folks and other other children of color's experience learning about it is is is, is fundamentally different than than uh white children. Oh sure, sure. And that and that's exactly what I mean that it it had been. Interestingly, um I remember when I was uh doing my first big study on on school climate, um there was a southern city that was involved in the study. And um, I got a phone call. I, I never will forget this. I was at a track meet. Um, and one of my daughters was running track. And I was at a track meet and um, I got a phone call. And it was a uh, area code I didn't re- recognize, but I answered the phone. And um, it was um, news channel saying that we're here at this um, middle school and there are a group of parents that are protesting that this climate survey that you um, created is uh, racist. And I said, really? What? Like, that's surprising. But um, through talking to this person, and I ended up being on, on the six o'clock news that night, was that um, parents' perception of us asking the question, um, or asking questions about race and how kids were experiencing race were racist. So we'll give you a quick example. Um, one question is, um, uh, my race determines how successful I am in life. So asking kids, do you think so? Do you, do you believe that? Um, and so they can either disagree with that or agree with it. But the, asking those kinds of questions to get a sense um, overall of how children were um, are, were forming racial identities um, was the aim. But but people accused us of being racist. That those are racist questions. Um, and it's, no, we're asking the question. We're not putting this in their heads. And we were asking this of middle school students. Um, the parents went on to say things like, our kids don't know anything about race, and we want to keep it that way, in middle school, nonetheless. Mm. Um, does that surprise you? Oh, not, a, not at all. Were, were these mostly white parents, parents of color? Were... Well, it was a mix, actually. It was, there were mostly white parents. 
but there mm-hmm. were, from what I saw from the the news clip, was that there were black parents there too. I mean, to the point that they they had signs against getting rid of this mm-hmm. racist um, survey. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah, I would say I I would say what what happened was you know your survey, and you as the researcher violated what I like to refer to as the uh, the sacrosanct colorblind imperative of no race talk. And so a lot of Americans, most whites, and some uh, confused people of color, uh, like to imagine that we inhabit a post-racial society where race no longer matters. And to the extent that you, that you uh, challenge that notion, you know, it's often uh, – deemed kind of an attack on, on their, on their parenting for these parents for a year in this case, or their whole, it's like disturbing their whole worldview thing, you know, popping the bubble of, of, of that they've cocoon, cocooned themselves in for so long. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, and, and to the extent that, to the extent that we can't have conversations about the, uh, the history of this country vis-a-vis race and racism and the contemporary uh, racial reality, then there's absolutely no chance for us to make meaningful, durable progress on the racial front, and so that doesn't surprise me at all. And it doesn't surprise me either that there are, that there could be some uh, black parents or other parents of color that that are also concerned about that. Um, this is why education is so important and having uh, honest conversations about this, and that's why I think courses such as mine uh, are, are vital and. Uh, being very frank and talking about these issues in an unvarnished manner is needed. And I recently wrote a piece about a week and a half or so ago for Inside Higher Ed called "The Politics of Race Course Titles." Mm. And in there, I, and in there, I, I, I made the case for why we need to jettison these white liberal pablum-like titles that suggest that we're kind of arrayed in a racially pluralistic society, we're all just jockeying for a competitive advantage, which is a complete fiction. We live in a racially stratified society where our life chances are intimately connected uh, to our racial ascription or how people uh, group us along, along racial lines. And so ter- courses like race and ethnicity or race and ethnic relations or race relations or race in America or even racism in America could mm-hmm. arguably – uh, be uh, the argument could be made that that those courses are providing the students who would take them with a bad first example of how to capitulate in the face of white racial domination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, you know, just shifting a little bit, I, I'm, I mean, I appreciate your your opinion on that. Um, shifting a little bit, um, I'd love to hear a little more about your research. Um, what you have been, um, I know you, you, you write various articles kind of across the board, but um, tell me a little bit about what your, your research is. Certainly. Well, <clears throat> my research in general is concerned with understanding uh, contemporary forms of racism, uh, identifying where, how they're operable, where they exist, because you, Institutional racism and subtle forms of racism are are more difficult to pin down sometimes and to document empirically. And so what I've been doing recently is work called uh, audit studies, audit research, which you may be familiar with, where you send trained testers or matched fictitious individuals out to look for either housing or jobs or something of that nature. And then you uh, compare the response rates or the treatment 
between two or more different groups. And so what I've done is I've completed recently a national audit study of white college admissions counselors' racial screening practices of black prospective students. And so essentially what I did was I created uh, four racial types, what I call a nondescript black uh, sustainability black. Those were my two non-racially salient black students. These are fictitious high school students just communicating with admissions counselors and asking about, uh, based on whether what they're interested in, whether they would be a good fit for their institution. And so those two examples, the nondescript and sustainability black, suggest that these individuals are not particularly interested or have not uh, betrayed an interest in racial matters. Um, and then I had two what I call racially salient or um, racially salient uh, black perspective students. Uh, one of them is what I call uh, African-American culture or racial unity black. This individual was interested in um, gospel choir, jazz, the, a black student organization. And the, the last one is what I call anti-racist black. And so you have this nondescript colorblind person. You have interested in math and English, and they tutor at the library. You have the sustainability person who basically wants to save water bottles and uh, you know be involved in the greenhouse stuff and this environmental sustainability movement. And then you have the African-American culture student, and then you have the anti-racist uh, black student. And I sent all of these, I created these narratives, and I sent them out to more than 500 white college admissions counselors at the same number of institutions across this country, private, historically, or predominantly white institutions. And then I assessed the response rates. So to what degree would these counselors respond to them? And so I'm testing what's called Devin Carbato and Mitu Galati's uh, theory of intra-racial discrimination, which which stipulates that in the purportedly post-racial era, organizations no longer desire to be racially exclusionary. They actually want some folks of color among their ranks, but that they want a particular type of person of color, and they want ones that are the least racially palatable. And so these most institutions of higher education and K-12 institutions claim to want diversity organizations. And so I don't believe that they do, blanket in a, in a kind of blanket manner i believe that they want some folks of color who will uh, assimilate and, and and accommodate themselves to whiteness and white prerogatives and so that's what i tested and what i found was that the uh, those students who betrayed an interest in racial politics and were interested in um, criminal justice reform were involved in community activism and uh, were involved in an anti-racist student organization were highly statistically significantly less likely to have their inquiry emails to white college admissions counselors responded to. And, okay. you know, these counselors would never admit that they would do something like this. They would, they would claim that we want all students who are qualified to apply and, and uh, we would communicate with them equally because clearly we're colorblind and we just want good students, you know, and so that's not what I found. Mm, fascinating. Fascinating. And uh, do you do you have any hypotheses about um, how this, if at all, relates to um, what might be um, in a historically black college admissions? You know, how what what uh, what might be the um, the um, syntax, so to speak, or the uh, taxonomy? of of black college admissions i <clears throat> so i 
I do have a few. Um, I, I, this was a part of a bigger study, so I do have uh, some uh, individuals who communicated with counselors at uh, HBCUs. Um, I don't think that I have enough of them to run a, a meaningful analysis at this time. I suspect that there would be a somewhat similar pattern. I think the the response rate would still be generally lower for the anti-racist black student because even uh, at HBCUs, these organizations are going to uh, – they exist within the broader society. So these counselors themselves will be affected by the kind of colorblind ideology that, that permeates our society. I don't think the effect would be as large. I think it would be moderated. But I still think that we would see a pattern whereby the, the most race conscious or the most racially salient black students would have their collegiate aspirations depreciated by these counselors uh, reflected through the lower response rates. But that's an empirical question. You know, perhaps uh, down the road I'll investigate that too. But I wanted to focus initially on this broader group of uh, of uh, institutions that are historically and predominantly white. Sure, sure, sure. And so, um, what what are your 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 plans? Uh, which what's your next uh, big big uh, topic you're going to tackle? So I, I have a couple. Uh, I'm going to stick with this audit me- methodology because I'm interested in it, and what it does is it allows us to determine causation in in a way, and I, I like that because then when the, when, when the data is revealed, uh, folks who like to claim that race no longer matters uh, can't say that, and they stand naked before the evidence, and so the evidence is more damning, I think, um, and this, when you have these kinds of audit studies due to the experimental nature of the, the method. So what I'm going to be doing next is, and I'm working on the IRB now, um, looking at how uh, middle-class blacks and middle-class Latinos and middle-class whites are treated and in, in homeowners are treated in the provision of uh, home services. So, for mm-hmm. instance, electric, electricians, plumbers, locksmiths, things of this nature. And what, I, what I'm going to be doing uh, with, with a colleague of mine is investigating whether the uh, blacks and Latinos who have, you know, kind of are living the quote unquote American dream. They've experienced upward social mobility. They're, they're now in the ranks of the middle class and they are a homeowner and they need to procure services for their home. And I want to know the extent to which they're treated equitably, or is there any difference in the, uh, the prices that they're quoted, the, the likelihood of them being responded to and, um, and the kind of the general tone uh, of the, the the communications that we'll receive back from that. I'm also mm-hmm. uh, in the early stages of a project with a, a graduate student who's a former undergraduate student of mine, now graduate student, examining uh, yoga uh, studios and whether and the extent to which black men and women, when they communicate with uh, yoga studios, whether they're treated equitably in terms of availability, price, uh, and tone. Mm-hmm. So those are two more areas. So basically wow. just kind of living life, living life as a black and brown person, I like to investigate how we're treated because the narrative is that there's uh, – the dominant narrative is that race no longer matters, particularly uh, – this is mostly white folks, but some also naive and confused people of color also advance the argument that we're, we're past race. And so I am uh, interested in documenting empirically various areas 
uh, institutional areas where there are uh, racially inequitable practices being undertaken that limit the life chances of black and brown folks? Oh, well, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to keep my eye open um, uh, for those studies and those and those articles that uh, uh, on those areas, because, you know, one of the as you were talking, I it, it took me back um, a little over 10 years ago. Um, and I tell the story all the time about um, um, how, you know, the vestiges of past discrimination uh, show up when you think, you know, for, for many of us, uh, when you think um, it's over, uh, these vestiges of past discrimination show up. And um, about a little over 10 years ago, I uh, received a check in the mail. Um, this check um, came from Life of Georgia Insurance Company. Um, I uh, didn't mention to you, but you may be aware that I'm originally from a small town in Alabama, um, and um, um, my father had purchased um, an insurance policy, um, as a lot of people did um, when I was born, um, purchase insurance policy, and weekly, the insurance guy would come and, you know, they'd tear out the, the tab and and you'd pay the insurance. And I remember they week after week, they'd come to the house on Saturday morning. And, um, and so anyway, my father bought this insurance policy and um, it was revealed later that Life of Georgia had sold blacks um, throughout the South, these insurance policy at a, a higher rate than they sold them to whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, you know, here we are, you know, I had, um, already graduated, um, uh, received my doctorate and on, gone on with my life, but I'm just saying, so here many, many years later, uh, comes a check saying, and what a note saying that it was part of a class action suit. And, and so, you know, we apologize and, you know, what have you. And, you know, I shared that with my children and I, and I talked to them also about how that those kinds of practices, and that's the reason I think what you're doing is so significant, because those kinds of practices, be they only affecting people of color or people who are poor, that when you have to pay more to live in the country, it makes it harder for you to uh, generationally um, do better. Um, because what I said to them, you know, at least my simplistic way of thinking about it was that, you know, the, the, the money that in this one area might not have amounted to a whole lot that my father spent more. But if you compound that, you know, you say it's 10% or 20% more on average that people of color have to pay to live in this mm-hmm. country where it is around services for electricians and plumbers and even to go to the yoga studio. Right. Um, that, that, that's significant. And it, it, it probably adds up to uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars a year um, in, in extra 
um, costs for the, for these groups. And so I really have a, a, a deep appreciation for um, you looking into that. And I just, I personally want to thank you for the work that you're doing in this area. Oh, no, 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 I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So um, as I promised, you know, I, 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 you know, we could go on forever with this. Um, we're at, our, at the end of our time. I hope um, our audience um, has been as enlightened as I have been. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, staying in touch and hearing more about the work that you're doing. Um, so again, uh, really appreciate you uh, being on the show. Uh, to my listeners out there thank you for tuning in this month Um, we'll see you next time and until next time go well stay well thank you Ted thank you thank you is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VTW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus